My name is Helen Yanakopoulos, and sitting around the table with me today are Godfrey Boyle, Stephen Peake, and Joe Smith. We're here to discuss the context and outcomes of the Rio Plus 20 conference. Stephen, what are your thoughts? If you look at the main outcome of the conference, which is this document entitled The Future We Want, which is 50-odd pages long, um, nearly 300 paragraphs long, uh, it's quite an interesting document. It's academically, and for those people who are studying international relations and interested in how these UN processes evolve over time, it's actually a very good document compared to the negotiating document that they were dealing with pre-meeting, which had a lot more interest in it. But what the Brazilian hosts have managed to do is produce this rather fine piece of soft international law. It's not binding, it's all fine words, and we've got rather a lot of that. But it actually hangs together, and they've hit all the kind of right buttons um, about uh, what has gone on in the past and the promises and the gap between action and promises. And what's helped them do that, I think, is that they very cleverly decided, uh, either just before the conference or when the conference got going, it's clear that the Brazilian hosts decided that the only way that they were going to bring this conference to an orderly close a couple of days later would be that they would kick some of the really important stuff into the long grass. They'd kick that can down the road for a different metaphor. And some of the key things that they kicked down the road, which we were all hoping for, was one was some progress on sustainable development goals. Uh, another was on what they call institutional framework for sustainable development, means how does the UN do uh, sustainable uh, development. And the third one uh, that they sort of kicked down the road a bit was they call it means of implementation, which really means money, who's giving who what. So you could look at the outcome, and the media has, as said, actually not much happened, and... Uh, to some extent, that's that, that's true. But the, these three important processes have been launched and they need to be landed in the next two or three years. So so there is some progress. I wonder if Godfrey can step in here because, Godfrey, you've been to a number of these conferences. Oh, yes, and it would be interesting to hear how this conference sits amongst the historical legacy of these types of conferences? Well, yes. I mean, as I said in my podcast before Rio, I did attend the, the um, Stockholm conference all those years ago. And that also, in a way, was similar to this. Maybe bashful, Godfrey. It was 1972. Oh, so 1972. <laughs> all right, then. Yes, it was a lot. 40 years ago, indeed, it was. And in many ways, it also was a conference that had a relatively fuzzy outcome. It, there weren't any particular laws passed or resolutions that were binding. Um, and this one's pretty much the same. I also, as did some of the other people around this table, attend the Johannesburg Summit, which also was a bit disappointing in terms of positive outcomes. So it's really perhaps only the old Rio 20 years ago that had the positive outcomes like the Climate Change Convention and the Biodiversity Convention and so on, and the Agenda 21. I do share Stephen's view that the, it, perhaps the declaration isn't quite as pessimistic as it might appear to be, and I confess that I haven't read all X thousand words of it. Um, but I, I, I was dismayed by uh, the reports and uh, by the coverage of the conference in that it seemed that what was being said was that by many people 
that they've given up on the idea that governments can act in these domains and that we have to leave everything on many things from now on to the private sector and to the NGOs and to civil society. And I, I'm afraid I don't really think I agree with that. I think that there are still many things that governments could and should do in the international and the national and the regional arena and that it isn't really good enough to leave things to the private sector, however important their participation may be, of course, I totally acknowledge. I think I want to go further than that and say that the, possibly the most optimistic thing about what's happening with these UN processes, and we've got to remember this is just one moment in time, mm. one pin in the map. This meeting is part of a much longer process. The optimistic thing I find is that actually we're kind of sieving this massive agenda that's emerged over four decades and, and sieving out uh, some of the, the uh, high-sounding chat and uh, beginning to collect a to-do list. And one of the contrasts you could make between Stockholm in 72, which generated and was part of and was partly generated by uh, a big civil movement around environmental protection, generated things like Earth Day, and 92, which again had a massive uh, wave of, of public and media attention. Those things felt like a kind of clearing of the throat politically didn't really generate anything uh, substantial outside the conventions, which, of course, were only starting points and took years to mature. You could say biodiversity's not got there yet. However, the moment we're in now feels like there's a bit of a distribution of labour. I think there's a question about whether they needed Rio plus 20, whether we wouldn't have been better off if we had just got a few uh, reports from working groups spread across the planet. And that would have actually, I think, been much truer to the spirit of where we're at with this story. But there's no doubt about it, Godfrey, you're dead right. This is not a set of issues that can be left to the private sector or some mix of homespun transition town activity and, and multinational reporting processes. Government and government competence, I think, is going to be really central to that. I want to ask, Stephen, your experience of the UN system, whether you see there's an effective join between governments and the UN process around these uh, big arm-waving topics. Is that maturing? It is. I mean, there, if you look at the process of the development of soft international law, these sort of fine declarations that come out of these uh, very large uh, environmental mega-meetings, there is institutional memory. And in fact, if you look at the, at the zero-draft document, negotiation document, going into the negotiations, there was some new language there. And new language always frightens the horses. And so if you want to go home early and for the conference to end on time, the default setting <laughs> is to chuck the new language away mm -hmm. and get out the old language. And so you see in the informal reports of what was going on that you, you, see, you see reports in the press that um, delegations went back to the old Johannesburg language. They go back to safe little chunks of language and they insert that and you build the document as a series of little bricks and, and you do it that way because you, you each know that you've committed to that sentence before. So it's a bit ridiculous if you put your flag up and say, I disagree with that sentence because you disagree with yourself. So it tends to enlighten. So there, but there is institutional memory and I think that... Um, Joe is absolutely right to sort of look at the look at that sort of broader perspective on whether the politics works, and it's clear right now in 2012, as we face this global financial turmoil, there isn't a particular appetite right now. The timing was just wasn't right for us to have a 
a great, wonderful kind of powwow which resulted in some new binding, interesting international law. I mean, who remembers Stockholm plus 10? You're shaking your head, and nor do I. Um, I was in shorts. Yeah. <laughs> if you do a bit of research, as I had to do, you find out that there was a Stockholm Plus 10. It was in Nairobi. And despite Stockholm being an important meeting, um, again, there's no real institutional memory of that particular event. There is, as, as, as uh, Joe and Godfrey said about Johannesburg, there was some outcomes around actions, although still the press was unhappy uh, that, that there wasn't some really concrete thing that came out. But these things do happen, and I think we just don't know yet what the influence of Rio Plus 20 as a meeting will be. You know, we could be surprised. There's certainly, these processes have been launched, and we could, we could come to value these processes extremely highly. So, Stephen, would I be right in thinking that one of those processes that's been set in train is to shift attention uh, from uh, millennium development goals to sustainable development goals or to extend that concept of concrete uh, targets into the sustainability field. Helen, this is something you can talk to because you've worked with the, the MDGs, as they're known. Yeah, it's interesting how um, the sustainable development goals have come out very clearly in the in the document The Future We Want, the outcome document. Uh, the Millennium Development Goals have been around for since since 2000, and they have been extremely successful in many ways. I think the, you know these are these are disputed these are disputed kind of outcomes of the Millennium Development Goals. One of the things that we can be very clear about is that there are certain goals that are being achieved, particularly um, around clean water around uh, education in, in many countries. And one of the things around the Millennium Development Goals is that they have very clear outcomes, very clear targets, and they're not the responsibility of just one particular political actor. So the state is the key player in the Millennium Development Goals, but they have been negotiated through a process of states, UN, civil society, and but the states are ultimately responsible. And I think this goes back to the point that, that Godfrey and Joe made around the role of the state in these types of international negotiations. But doesn't it say also something interesting about the difference between environmental politics and social politics? Because uh, where you've got a, a social goal, such as ending poverty, uh, giving access to education for children, you've got a sort of a shape around that goal. You also know the kind of emotional register you'll work in and there's real clarity about whether that's being delivered or not. And social campaigners have played all those cards and they played them effectively. Um, they're not always getting all they, they want and, as you say, the MDGs are being hotly contested. But I think we can look at solid progress there. If you then look at environmental politics, I would say one of the hazards for the future we want document and for thinking in terms of sustainable development goals is that we underestimate the conflict involved, we underestimate the real politics that needs to be done to resolve environmental debates. There's somehow deep-seated, and it's been there since 72, the assumption that it's just enough to say this is bad. It's just enough to describe environmental limits or the, the, the current uh, phrase's boundaries. And actually, it's not enough. 
it doesn't suddenly become self-evident. This, this is a kind of, intellectually, this is a really deterministic habit uh, whereby you think that the political outcome will simply, you know, drop out of the end of the machine. Interestingly enough, what's crept into this document and the negotiation process that led up to it is this, this phrase, science-led agenda. I think they've, we've invented a new euphemism. We, call it, we say the <laughs> science-led agenda. And I, what does that mean? That seems to mean this recognising of planetary boundaries. So they sort of mean, can I please have some of the politics that I would expect that would flow if you actually had been reading and understanding the science, but you don't seem... The science yeah. doesn't seem to lead the agenda. So the science-led agenda actually means environmental-led agenda, the i.e. the politics that would flow if you accept limits to growth. And this is the story behind this rather cumbersome phrase, institutional framework for sustainable development. This is one of the things they kicked down the road. That is, is the UN Commission on Sustainable Development, the CSD, is that working properly? Is UNEP, the United Nations Environment Programme, working as effectively as it could do among the constellation of other secretariats and UN specialised agencies. This is a sort of perennial question and clearly not everyone is happy with the way that the UN system does sustainability. That's no surprise because we know that sustainability has some environmental politics, some economics certainly in it and some social uh, dimensions uh, and then it has all these thematic area forests oceans you know climate biodiversity so you wouldn't expect a bureaucracy to be able to deal with that easily um, but I think that what lies behind this as I say it's perennial frustration with the way that the UN does sustainability is a recognition actually that what Joe's saying and it's a profound point that there it is time for a politics of environment to emerge. And where we allow some argument, actually. You know, we allow conflict because these topics are full of conflict and we behave like they aren't. Um, and at the centre of that argument and at the centre of that politics is a debate about who's responsible and who's vulnerable. That isn't going to be resolved by science. That's going to be resolved by politics. If I may, I'd like to read paragraph four from the future we want. It's quite a long paragraph. And I suppose the goal is to make numeric technocratic targets that, that speak to this. So this is what the nations of the world, the leaders of the world and their high-level representatives agreed in paragraph four. We recognise that poverty eradication, changing unsustainable and promoting sustainable patterns of consumption and production and protecting and managing the natural resource base of economic and social development are the overarching objectives of and essential requirements for sustainable development. We also reaffirm the need to achieve sustainable development by promoting sustained... Sorry, I can't stand it anymore, Stephen. <laughs> OK, no, what people need to imagine is that those keywords appear in the paragraph uh, rejigged re uh, for another ten lines. But, I mean, your point is that actually there's nothing really to grip onto there. No. And so... What I want to do is to say that something did happen at the conference and in the run-up to it, which you really can get a grip on. And that is uh, the goals uh, around sustainable energy for all. And I think it would be worth us actually saying, OK, so you made a bit of a gag of that, 
and rightly so. You know, it's very predictable mm-hmm. uh, body of um, uh, helping grannies across the road kind of emotions. But the truth is there is something really solid around that well, program. Yes, if I can just talk about the energy issue for a moment. I mean, I was both disappointed and mildly pleased by two things that I well, two outcomes of the conference. I mean, it's one very disappointing thing was that the conference failed to address the huge issue of subsidies to fossil fuels, which everyone, I think, almost everyone agrees are enormous. I mean, the latest estimate I saw was a billion dollars a year being devoted to fossil fuel subsidies, whether it's tax breaks or giving cheap fuel to poor people and so on. And almost everyone agrees that those ought to be phased out very rapidly and that global carbon emissions would would be reduced by 5% or thereabouts if we did that. So it's a great shame to me that the the conference somehow failed to address those issues because of presumably the the parlous state of the world economy or at least of the European and American bits of the world economy rather than maybe the BRICS countries. But I do take some crumbs of comfort from the United Nations Secretary General's Sustainable Energy for All initiative, which apparently has had the backing of 100 NGOs and companies and so on and will lead to hopefully very improved conditions in many thousands of villages in the developing world over the next 10 or 20 years. Although I add a caveat there again, you see, it's another example of how perhaps the world governmental organizations have stepped back and the gap has been filled at least partially by well-meaning NGOs and companies. But it's only the good guys, if the benign companies that step forward to the plate in, in doing these things, it leaves aside all the harsh and and unpleasant and ruthless companies that wouldn't dream of getting involved in anything as good as Sustainable Energy for All. So I still think that although this initiative is to be welcomed, it isn't really enough. But Godfrey, uh, wouldn't wouldn't the the big guns come and play in this game if if you were removing the uh, subsidy from fossil fuel and you were starting to tax carbon at a meaningful level or give it a meaningful price one way or the other? Absolutely. Can you give examples of, of, of developments within uh, the energy industry that indicate how that might work or where that might go? Well, I suppose, speaking from my sort of perhaps partial point of view, I mean, I would like to see the emphasis on exploring for oil in the Ar- and gas in the Arctic and sensitive regions being de-emphasized by the big oil majors. You're being polite when you say de-emphasized. Oh, right. oh, right. <laughs> well, OK, I, for want of a better word. And um, unlike the, the abandonment of renewables, renewables, which some of the big companies have, have done, they should be investing more in renewable energy because all the studies that I've seen show that renewables really could make a major, major contribution to the world's energy needs on an indefinitely prolonged basis rather than for the relatively short-term period that fossil fuels would be sufficient for. I'm a bit in two minds about this issue about fossil fuel subsidies and carbon taxes and energy prices because it's easy for us to sit here in relatively developed, wealthy Britain for now uh, and speculate on what would happen to the Nigerians if their government stopped subsidising their fuel. But, you know, they want to develop cheaper energy prices fuels economic growth. It fuels high carbon, high energy economic growth It's not the green growth that this meeting sat down to talk about, but it does bring people rapidly out of poverty and give them the sorts of lifestyles that they they hanker after. So I think we have to be careful about the price of energy. 
I kind um, of come back on yeah. that. And yeah, so, of course, you're right to say that there are two different types of subsidies. There are tax breaks for the oil exploration companies. Then there's the cheap energy given to poor people. And certainly, if you were to phase out the latter, there would need to be other measures introduced to make it easier for poor people to still get the fuel that they need. And, of course, I totally agree with that. Um, I, I do think that the big energy companies could come on board and accommodate to reducing fossil fuel subsidies. It would have to be phased over a period of years. It wouldn't happen overnight. But the Shells and the BPs and the Exxons of this world are perfectly capable of living without the subsidies. And they are huge. And not only are they huge, but they've gone on for decade after decade after decade, whereas the subsidies that people sometimes criticize that have gone to renewables have only gone to them for the last 10 or 20 years and are even then, relatively minor compared to the fossil fuel subsidies. So I think there definitely isn't a level playing field here. But you've raised the question of leadership in the big corporations. And Stephen, you've been working with hundreds of leaders from large corporations across the last 10 years. What's your level of optimism or pessimism about their capacity to absorb, just taking energy as an example, to absorb uh, the mission in front of them? I think the energy industry and the engineering companies and those that are involved in designing and building the cities of the future, they are not assuming that energy is going to be cheap. They're assuming that energy is going to be expensive and water is going to be short. And the ones that I work with, the large engineering companies, the large fossil fuel companies, believe that to their DNA, to the level of their DNA. That is the world in which they see. And when they accept that, as they largely are doing now... They are plotting and planning um, to try to build resilient facilities, resilient infrastructure. I mean, that actually is happening. So energy is a classic case. Um, If we say we have this energy for all agenda, we'd like to give commercial supplies of cheaper energy, cleaner energy to the billion people that don't currently have it and to the billion that are coming by the time we meet in 10 years. What's there not not to like about that? There's just one tiny weeny problem in there. That's our other agenda with climate change, which is that we need to not only produce and provide cheap energy, but that has to be largely carbon free if we're going to meet this temperature target. And of course, we see that really these things don't at the moment join up. So we have this energy for all agenda, but we still don't, for example, have the rapid deployment of carbon capture and storage for either gas-fueled or coal-fired power, uh, uh, power stations around the world, in the developing world, still not really happening. It's still too slow. So we can have energy for all, but we don't quite mean it yet with carbon. And that's just one example. There's issues around development of forests, development of oceans, etc., etc. And that's when the whole thing blows up sure, and we say it doesn't you know, it doesn't all quite add up. I mean, sustainable energy for all, of course, to clarify, is meant to be for the poor villages of the world. It isn't really particularly to be addressing the cities and the big consumers that you've quite rightly pointed out. And it is aiming at massive increases in renewable energy, energy efficiency, reducing fuel poverty. But you're quite right, it isn't intended to address the big issues that you've just outlined. So this sounds very depressing, (laughs) <laughs> is it depressing? Is Rio, is the outcome of Rio depressing? Where, what, do, what do we see? What do we take out of Rio? What ways forward can we see? Well, I've been slightly heartened by this conversation in that Stephen seems to be able to uh, put together some grounds for cautious long-term optimism from the apparent short-term 
depressing outcome of that it would appear to be so from the immediate aftermath of Rio plus 20. I mean, I, for one, was relatively disappointed by it, although I kind of expected that I would be <laughs> because the expectations had been lessened so well by the, the propaganda before it. Um, I suppose I am heartened by what Stephen's been saying. I think the, the, the sustainable development goals could lead to something very valuable by 2015. The other things that have been set in train, sustainable energy for all, could be very valuable. And maybe, as Joe's been saying, it's only one step in a whole series of steps that we've made ever since Stockholm in 1972. And we shouldn't attach too much importance, particularly at a time of world economic turmoil, to one particular conference. That's right. And I want to also uh, cheer us all up with the thought that, okay, if the media weren't that attentive and the public weren't that attentive to a United Nations meeting, for most people, many miles away, uh, the truth is that across 40 years, public understanding and engagement of these incredibly complex environmental change issues has grown enormously. So we know that Actually, a pretty substantial proportion of the world's population have a pretty good understanding of what climate change is and what needs to be done about it. And that's a, not a bad place to be starting. Um, I also think that if you, if you look away from that pin in, in the map, which is the UN conference, and you look at what's happening in some incredibly innovative uh, community uh, schemes, but at the same time you look at what a company like Unilever is setting itself to do very public targets for, say, 2020. Um, there's a lot happening out there. There's a lot on the map. So I suppose I would slow myself down a little and remind myself of the phrase that hope is a good breakfast but a bad supper. Um, we need to, I think, communicate an idea about where we want society to go. There's never been social change of any scale that hasn't described a better world we're going towards but then actually just get down to writing a to-do list. Stephen, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm reflecting on some time I spent with a colleague, Jack Frost, who's head of the hydrogen fuel cells business at Johnson Matthey. He and I were doing some leadership training the other day together. and I, He was busy sharing his thoughts on the power and the sexiness of supply chain management. And I must admit that I and people in the room didn't immediately see how supply chain management could be so sexy. But if you look at the story of what we've done with, for example, vehicle emissions and catalytic converters, it's a general story where government and society have asked for something. They've asked industry to develop some alternative ways of doing things, in this case with engine emissions and engine technologies. And they've done that over a sustained period of time where it was certain that the whole thing was going to change and the rules of the game would change and the investment could flow. And I just wonder, I started to think about these summits as a sort of supply chain. And I was asking myself, what is the question that we've asked the supply chain to deliver? And I don't think we're very good at expressing that question. We've kind of left it in sort of cotton wool terms. I, I could go back, Joe. Shall I carry on reading paragraph four? <laughs> Stop. Um, we've asked for motherhood and apple pie and all these wonderful things, which actually nobody can easily operationalise. And I think we haven't yet. My hope is that in terms of working together, civil society, government, 
the private sector, we, that we haven't even begun to even mind the potential of what we could do together if we could just have a better approach to supply chain management. What would you like? I mean, the core of what Jack says, and it's so powerful, is that you can have anything you want. Just ask. <laughs> well, just to chip in here for a second, I mean, we keep using the word we here a lot. And of course, that's ignoring the fact that the world is riven by different interests, uh, many of which do not really concur. You've got the interests of the poor, you've got the interests of the rich countries and the poor countries, you've got the interests of the multinationals, some of which are very benign and well-meaning as the ones like the ones that Stephen deals with, others which are perhaps not so well-meaning and rather ruthless and don't really care about the global warming or pollution or deaths in coal mines or whatever it may be. Um, so we have to be a bit careful about our use of the word we here because there are many we's and they don't all agree with one another. I don't know why everyone behaves with these sustainability summits like it's a sort of World Cup. And the way we behave is that we have the World Cup and there is the final and there is no result, always no result in the final. <laughs> and then everybody runs away and says, well, that's it now. We've had the World Cup. We know there's no result. There's no need to meet again. <laughs> and, you know, football is like that. You know, just because Germany wins the, the World Cup or Italy wins the World Cup, that means the next day we all get up and think, I wonder who's going to win the next World Cup. And it starts again. So can it's we all a agree? game. Can we all agree in 10 years' time we'll take a boat to Stockholm plus 50? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> See you there. The Open University. For more information, go to www.open.edu forward slash iTunes U.